Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. It's the last Sunday of 2021. Um, I know a lot of people have had a lot of difficulties this past year. And uh, everyone, maybe not all to the same degree, but everyone in their own way. And I want to remind you all, here at the end of the year, that God is still good, and He is still God. He is good, He is able, and He is faithful. And so we worship Him today by hearing and believing His Word and what He has to speak to us through it. And so if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and we'll be in verses 36 through 46. So Matthew 26, verses 36 and 46. This is the place in the Bible, in Matthew, where Matthew has been leading up to the Garden of Gethsemane. In this passage, there are some very famous phrases come out of this passage in the English language. Remain here and watch with me. Or pray that you will not enter into temptation. Behold, my betrayer is at hand. Or probably the most famous, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. All of those phrases have to do with the disciples or with overcoming temptation or about the power of prayer or about the will of the Spirit and the will of the flesh and how they contend with one another or even the moment of betrayal. Now those things are here. They're important. But they are not what this passage is about. This passage... The, the focal point where it zooms in on is Jesus Christ on the night before His crucifixion. I gave the example this morning of it being like a telescope, these passages, and it is. If you go outside at night and you look up at, uh, at a star, it just looks like a little blip up there in the sky, doesn't it? A little pinprick of light. But if you were to take a telescope and point it towards that star, let's say the nearest star to the earth, and you focus this gigantic telescope on it, you're going to see the star a lot more clearly, aren't you? It might look this big, which is still a far cry from how large and glorious this star really is. But you see it and you perceive it a whole lot better through a telescope. Well, this passage is like that. It is a telescope on Jesus Christ and His suffering in the garden. And though we can't see Him in His fullness, we see Him a whole lot better than we would without this passage in Scripture. It's like a telescope that magnifies the glory of Christ, not to present them in the way that they ought to be seen, but certainly more than a, than a pinprick of light. And to make a detour, to make a detour from Christ, the shining star, and, and to instruct on overcoming sin or personal prayer or the Spirit and the flesh, all of these truths are here and we need to know them and they're important, but to turn our attention away to look at those 
would be like focusing on a speck of dust that landed on the lens of the telescope and marveling at the speck of dust. It puts our attention in the wrong spot if we take our focus in this passage off of Christ. There are more important things to be seen here. So let's turn our attention to our Lord and Savior in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And as he came to the disciples, he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest Later on, see, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, and let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, please give us ears to hear, and hearts to love, and minds to comprehend what is in this passage this morning. Lord, it is greater than all of the stars in the universe combined. You take all of the glory of everything that is created. It falls short of the majesty of Christ on display. His strength. Lord, you just... It's as though you keep piling and piling and piling weight on Christ and one, one that would crush all of us and He bears it up. There is nobody like Him. There is no one like Your Son. Thank You that He marshaled all of His courage and strength and used it, Lord, for our deliverance and for Your glory. Oh God, help us to love Him more this morning. You could not love us any less. Amen. Sometimes when we think about worship and we think about what we do here on Saturday or Sunday morning, we treat it like a Saturday morning. And we sit down and we think, oh, it's Sunday morning, I'm here to sing, I'm here to relax, and we kind of look at it that way. That's not the way that Sunday morning ought to be thought of. That's not the way the gathering of believers in worship ought to be thought of by us. You know, sometimes people lament. You know, people can sit for a sports game for two hours or a movie, sometimes for three hours. They can't sit in church for more than 
more than an hour and a half, or sometimes a half hour seems like too much. But there's some truth to that. Because when you're sitting down here in the pews, you're not sitting down in the same way you would if you were going to watch a movie or a sports game. And I certainly don't expect you to sit down and and listen and, and kind of tune out as if you were sitting down to be entertained. In fact, coming to worship to be entertained... Ezekiel laments this and God rebukes the people. Ezekiel says, Lord, they all come, but they come and listen as someone comes to listen someone singing, to someone singing songs. They just come to be entertained. The purpose of being here this morning is not to be entertained, but to carefully listen, to pay attention to what's being said, to be asking questions like, how does this apply to me? What does this mean for this area of my life? What does God want me to do and how does He want me to respond to what I'm hearing? That's what should be going on when we worship together. You're not leaning back. You're leaning in and thinking and paying close attention. That's how God wants us to sing and especially to hear the preaching of His Word. So pay attention to what you're about to hear. We begin... This passage on the way to Gethsemane. In the name itself, Gethsemane, it means olive press. And it's an olive press that's situated in a a garden, surrounded by olive trees. This is where he gave the Olivet Discourse. Evidently, the owner of this place was a Christian. And he allowed Christ to come, as John tells us in John 18 too, many times to come and spend the time here in this garden outside of Jerusalem. It was a, a quiet, secluded place where he could come, the Lord, and, and, and take refuge just outside of that holy city. It was a place where he could hide away from the crowds and his, his hostile enemies and minister to his little flock in peace and prepare them for what was about to happen. It was a, a, a place of refuge for him, and so it's no wonder this is where he goes on the night of his betrayal. This is where he goes to wrestle for the souls of his disciples and for the souls of all mankind. That's what's happening here in the garden. And how do we find our Savior on this last night of his ministry? What what condition is he in? How high are his spirits? Verses 37 and 38 are shocking. And they're supposed to be because you see Christ in a way you have never seen Him so far in the Gospels. He says He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then He said to them, My soul is sorrowful even to death. And going a little further, He fell down on His face and prayed. He collapsed to pray. I mean, this is the man who has been unconquerable in debate. People wouldn't ask him questions because he would roll over them. He was fearless in the face of his enemies. They tell him, Herod wants to kill you. He says, you go tell that fox, I will preach today and tomorrow and then I will die in Jerusalem. He waged war against the devil, against the demonic hordes, against sickness and death for three years. And in all of it, it was victory after victory after victory, an unbroken chain of victory for Christ, never suffering defeat, never even looking like he would lose. And here, in the last battle of his ministry, he is sorrowful and troubled 
and filled with anguish to the point that he tells his disciples, this is so weary upon me, I want to die. I don't want to face this and go through with this. I am ready to die right here in the garden. And so he walks a stone's throw away, collapses on the ground in prayer, overwhelmed in agony. What are we to make of this? How do we make sense of what's happening? This is not the Christ that we have come to know, is it? You never see Him weak. You never see His courage even falter. He has courage in every instance. Courage in the face of danger and death. Courage when everybody else is fearful and fleeing. You think of Him on the boat on the sea in Galilee. The storm is raging. The waves are crashing. The disciples are terrified. They wake Him up. They say, Lord, we're done. He waves His hand, rebukes the waves, and wonders why the disciples have so little faith. So why does His courage seem to fail Him here? Why is the Almighty Son of God, who has worked so many miracles, who has stopped the raging sea, who has spoken into existence bread and fish that were not there before He said, let there be fish and bread, why is He disturbed and collapsing to the ground? Is it the death? He's going to die? Is that, is that what's trembling, causing his trembling? Absolutely not. He's not afraid of death. He's faced it again and again and again. In fact, that's why he came. He came to die. He knows this is going to happen. It's not like he's at this moment surprised. That's not why his sorrow boils over like an unintended pot. This is not why he is lamenting with great grief more than anybody in this room will ever know at the approach of his suffering. Is it because he knows Judas is going to come with a violent crowd? It's the agony of betrayal? Is it because he knows that very soon he's going to be delivered into the hands of his enemies and he trembles because of what they might do to him? Was it because Peter would deny him? His disciples forsake him? The Sanhedrin condemn him? Or can he not bear the thought of being treated unjustly at Pilate's hands who hands him over for crucifixion because it is expedient? What is the source of his agony that overwhelms his soul? I have no doubt all of those things we've mentioned played on his heart. No less than they would on yours or on mine were we to endure such injustice at the hands of evil men. There are many physical trials and injustices, painful ones, that are awaiting Him. And yet, when our Lord opens His mouth to pray, we don't hear concern for any of those fears. There's only one rational answer to the question. There's only one explanation for Christ's agony on this evening. The weight that is pressing down on His soul is not the fear of death, I mean, many, how many Christians throughout history have faced death for Christ's sake, and when they did, they were unwavering. You have Fox's Book of Martyr that recounts it. Two, two martyrs in England burned to death at the stake. They died. One of them said, play the man, and he burned for three hours. Not a groan, not a sigh, no sweating drops of blood. Many believers throughout history have died willingly without so much as a groan. It's not fear of death that made Christ in agony. It wasn't mistreatment or injustice 
or any of the evils that would most trouble us. That was all he faced. He could face it with ease. The weight that bent the back of our Savior and pressed down his soul was the weight of God's holy anger and displeasure against sin. It was his Father's divine fury against it. And this this crushing weight, the anger of God against evil, is something that no one who dies for Christ has to experience. Couldn't even imagine it. All of those martyrs, do you know why they died the way they did? Because God came and in their moment of death comforted them and strengthened them and shored up their faith. When Christ went to the cross and is there in the garden, all of that is taken away. Every hope and assurance is stripped from Him. God is not near to Him, but for the first time in eternity, Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the Father turns His back on the Son. No Christian ever goes through that. And it's this that made Him sweat great drops of blood in the garden. And it's this that made Him pray three times, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. It is the cup of God's wrath. It's not the cup of salvation that's mentioned in the Psalms. It's not the cup of blessing that's shared at Passover time. It is the cup of God's holy anger and judgments against sin. That is what Christ was facing that night. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the consistent, constant pictures of God being angry against sin, how it's captured, how it's portrayed uh, over the idolatry and the lying and the theft and the selfishness and the anger in the heart and the adultery and anything else that makes the, that God says, do not do these things. Anything else that God reveals displeases Him and makes men worthy of death. It's described, His anger against it as a cup being filled up. And the more sin and the more evil that takes place in the world, the fuller the cup becomes until it reaches its tipping point and pours over. In Isaiah 29.9, it's a cup that makes men stagger as though drunk. In Revelation 14, it's a cup of His anger, full of His wrath, poured out on those who refuse to worship Him. In Isaiah 51.17, it is a cup of fury that makes those who have filled it stagger and go astray. In Psalm 11, the cup is filled with fire and sulfur and scorching wind, and it's poured out on those who love violence. You love violence? In Psalm 78, it's a cup of foaming wine that the nations will drink down to the dregs. In every instance, it is a picture of destruction. God making the people endure His judgments where the guilty, they're given the cup, they say no. God says you will drink from this cup. Then you come to Jeremiah 25. And in Jeremiah 25, God warns the prophet that all of the nations in the world will be made to drink this cup. And they will drink it 
And he says, and they will stagger and they will die. And then he lists the nations and he starts in Jerusalem and he begins to work his way out until he encompasses all of the world. He says, Judah and Jerusalem will become a wasteland. Pharaoh and Egypt and all of the tribes among them, the king of Uz and the Philistines, Edom, Moab, Ammon, the kings of Tyre and Sidon, all the coastlands of Dedan and Tamas and Buzz, and the kings of Arabia and the various peoples who live there, all the kings of Elam and Media and of the north and those who are near and those who are far away, one after another will drink until all the kings and all of the peoples throughout the face of the earth, all of its inhabitants shall drink and fall and rise no more. The Lord will be against them and send against them disaster and storms and wars and famines and plagues and death. Their livelihoods will turn to ash. The dead, there'll be too many to bury. And there will be nowhere anyone can go to escape from. One of the prophets describes the day of the Lord where this cup is poured out on the world. He says it's as if a man was running because he met a lion in the streets and as he's, or an army was approaching and he's fleeing from this army on the street and he meets a lion so he goes off of the road and he runs into his house and he thinks finally he's safe and he puts his hand against the wall to catch his breath and a poisonous viper bites him and he dies. He says there's no escape. This, this relentless picture of, of a hunter almost seeking its prey, of, a, of an enemy seeking to destroy. It's just a poor picture being given in the Scriptures to describe the weight of the judgment that's in the cup. And how can you measure God's anger against sin? Us, we, fallen and sinful as we are, when we hear about injustice in the world, when we hear about what is evil in the world, even evil in ourselves, we get angry. Right? We're outraged when we hear about all of the atrocities that are being carried out in the world or in our own backyard. We cry out for justice. We're grieved. Our, our, we get angry about it, don't you? You hear about uh, one million children being aborted. What's your response? Apathy? Oh, yeah, no big deal. Yeah, I guess that's okay. Whatever people want. You hear about the Holocaust. Yeah, Hitler wanted to kill six million Jews. What's, you know, what's that to me? If someone responds that way, they've responded wrongly. If someone responds that way, well, you know two things. They don't care at all about justice. But we, as a fallen sinful people, we get angry when we hear about injustice, when we hear about the sin being carried out in the world. And if we can get angry about it, and it's right to be angry about the sin in the world and in ourselves, how much more a perfect and holy heavenly judge who has never even had a wicked thought. How much more the perfect judge who knows if we, sinful, can get upset and angry, crying out for justice about the little bit that we know, how much more the perfect, holy God who never knows sin and is aware of all of the evil that takes place all over the world, hidden away or public throughout all of time. He is furious about sin. This is why the psalm says in Psalm 711, God is angry with the wicked every day. Angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 5.5, He hates all who do what is wrong. Hates all who do iniquity. All of those evils. All of that wrongdoing. All of those things that drew forth the justice of God. They have been filling up this cup from the beginning. 
the sin of Adam, who listened to his wife rather than the voice of God and took that fruit. Noah's sins are in there when the first thing he does when he gets off of the ark after God's deliverance is go and make a vineyard and get drunk. Abraham, his lies about his wife Sarah and Lot's incest are in the cup. The deception of Jacob as he swindled his brother over and over again. They're in there and so are the sins of his sons Levi and Simeon when they went and they slaughtered an entire village in their anger. Reuben, who slept with his father's wife. Moses' sins when he murdered the Egyptian in cold blood and then disavowed the Lord by striking the rock. All of the sexual immorality of Rahab the prostitute are there in the cup. The sin of Samson, the sin of David, his adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his most loyal servants. And how does he respond? What kind of repentance does he have after the adultery? He has Uriah the Hittite sentenced to death in the field of battle. His sins are in that cup. His adultery and his murder. Solomon and his idolatry. King Manasseh. You're familiar with King Manasseh? Probably the worst king in Israel's history. He makes Ahab look like an angel. He took uh, the nation of Judah at one of its highest points and did everything he could to make it evil. He went and plundered the temple and set up idols. He reinstituted, uh, reinstituted child sacrifice. He set up high places in every corner and every high hill. And when the enemy came and took him away, Chronicles tells us King Manasseh repented and God was merciful to him and forgave him. And all of that sin of Manasseh, you think he led over a million people in the nation of Judah. Their blood was on his hands. And the blood in those hands, because he repented, was taken off of King Manasseh and poured into the cup. The disciples, with their constant failures, Mary Magdalene, who was full of demons, the temple prostitute who came and washed Jesus' feet with her hair, Peter's denials are in the cup, and all of the disciples falling away. The thief on the cross who all his life did nothing but steal and kill. Paul the Apostle and all of his raging against Christ when he approved of the stoning of Stephen and hunted down Christians to put them to death all the while believing himself to be on a righteous crusade for God. His sins are in the cup. And so are all the sins of all of the saints throughout all time including everyone's in this room. Imagine what a dark drink it would be if you were to take the sins of just one individual. Imagine not just everyone in this room, but all of God's people throughout all time. All of their shame, all of their guilt, every offense is in this cup. And there in the garden, Christ takes it in His hands. It was for God's enemies. This wasn't for God's Son this was for unjust sinners, not the beloved perfect one who had never done anything wrong. And yet, Christ lifts it up and takes the cup to his lips. Father, is there any other way? It goes beyond the capacity of our minds to understand what Christ is going through here.
I mean, imagine it was you or I. We would be crushed. We don't even understand how heavy the weight would be. And we would deserve it. But this is the one in the garden who knew no sin ever. His agonies are only intensified by how perfect he is. Sinclair Ferguson tells a story called The Stranger and the Smoker. And in it, he, he makes a contrast. He says There's a, there was a man who lived with his son up in a high tower. And in this, in this tower, the air was always pure and pristine. And all this son ever knew was the love of his father and the respect that he was due. Never an argument. Never animosity. Only perfected love all of the time here up above the world with his father. And one day, he is sent down to the earth below in an elevator. The earth is not like where they live. It's polluted by smoke and corrupted by sin. And in the story, he uses smoking as a, as a picture of the sin, sins of the people. And so he says when the door opens and the sun walks out, he walks out and the first thing he breathes in is the smoke that fills the air. When the people see him, they drag him out and throw him to the ground. They hate him because he's not like them. And they begin to blow smoke in his face and blow smoke in his eyes and try to stick their cigarettes in his mouth because they cannot tolerate the one who is perfect. Now think how offensive that would be to you or to me. How much more to one who had never breathed in polluted air. That's a picture of Christ coming down. He has never experienced antagonism in heaven. He has been loved perfectly from all eternity, sharing in the fellowship and the joy of the Holy Trinity. He has been perfectly content, perfectly satisfied, perfectly respected and loved. And now He has come down into a world where He is demeaned and the pollution of our sin has been clouding and pouring over His Spirit, surrounding Him day after day after day after day. And now here at the end, not only is He asked to continue to put up with it, but to drink it down in all of its consequences and be destroyed. Not only to be among sin, but to become sin. And the perfect, righteous, flawless One is about to be crushed and thrown into the sea of iniquity. Maybe you can relate to this in a very small, feeble way. When someone tells an off-color joke and you don't laugh, you're, you're repulsed. How could you say that? Or you, you don't want to be around when certain conversations are happening, make you uneasy. Or you're with the crowd and they're doing something and you know, I, I should not be doing this. You want to be around that crowd? It makes you uncomfortable. And if we, sinners born in sin, like Job says, drinking down sin as, as though it were water, if sin that is, can make us uncomfortable, if, a, if, if sin can do that to us, how much more the one who knew no sin? It's no wonder he is in agony and his soul vexed to make him despair of life here in the garden. If anything, it affirms to us that He is the Son of God because who could have the kind of courage to endure this but God? Who but the Son of God could endure the wrath of God? 
And here in the garden, he fights for his people. He shudders at the thought of what he endures. His body is, is breaking down at the prospect of it. I mean, if it caused him, the thought of what was coming caused him to sweat drops of blood. And if the thought of it could do that, how much more the, the drinking of the cup itself. And so he wrestles in prayer for strength. Is there any other way? And the answer comes from heaven's Son. There is no other way. The only way your people will be redeemed is if you, not Peter, certainly not Judas, nobody else, no blood of bulls or goats, son, to redeem your people whom you love, you alone must drink this cup. Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. A third time he prays, and this time he yields fully to the will of his Father. This time he is strengthened and determined now to follow through. He has received help, and from this moment on, having won the battle on the field of prayer, now until the very end, we see our Savior's courage restored, don't we? When they come to arrest him, Are you the one? I am he. And they all fall down. He doesn't waver when they strike him. Keeps his mouth silent. When reviled, he does not revile in return. He confounds the Sanhedrin. And though Pilate thinks he has the authority, Pilate trembles in fear before King Jesus. When he rises up after this third time in prayer, the battle is over. He has determined and been strengthened to endure, and now nothing is going to hinder him from marching on to Calvary. The question remains, why would he do this? Why would Christ subject himself so to what is so terrible and do it so willingly. Why would he put up with this when he could call down legions of angels to burn Rome to the ground, level Jerusalem, and carry him on to be king of the world? Hebrews 12.2 For the joy that was set before him, he, he endured the cross despising its shame for the joy that was set before them. I read that and I can't believe it. Joy. Joy is what drove him forward. You say, what is motivating Christ here in the garden? Joy. What joy? Doesn't look that joyful to me. What joy is on the other side of his suffering that enables him to face it? It is the joy of redeeming His people. I want you to imagine a doctor who has traveled deep into the jungle. He has spent his life training to be able to do this. He's going to provide medical care to those who are there. He hears of the people. He hears of their suffering. He says, if only they knew. And so he goes to rescue them and to redeem them. 
The doctor endures months of disease and sweltering heat and terrible weather and, uh, and insects everywhere, threats from the locals and pleas from his friends and his family. Stay home. Don't go. And he goes because he is determined to help these people. So after all of this, after determining to do this thing, what would be the greatest disappointment for the doctor? Would it be running out of medical supplies? Someone comes with a disease, I don't have what I need to fix it. Or a patient comes, the doctor tries to treat them, can't, and now they're permanently damaged because of his failure. No doubt that would be a heavy burden to bear. Or what if a patient died? That would be terrible. It might make him wonder whether or not he should have gone at all. But none of those things would be the worst outcome. The worst possible thing that could happen for this doctor, being there in the, gar in the, in the jungle, coming to minister to these people, would be, after all of that effort, to have those who were sick and afflicted, those he longed to care, hear of his coming, hear of his intentions, and tell him no. We're not going to come for you for care. We're going to heal ourselves. We're going to take care of ourselves on our own terms. We don't need what you have brought. And so the doctor would sit there, and despite of all of his provision, in spite of all of his training, he's fully equipped, he's financially independent, it's not going to cost them a dime, they would not come to be healed. That would wear his heart down more than absolutely anything. And imagine that is what happened to our doctor. And it did go on for some time until eventually a few desperate tribesmen come forward. Their medicine's failing them. They don't know what to do. Their children are sick. And so in desperation, they have the one hope they have left. They come to this doctor to receive treatment. When the doctor sees them coming out of the jungle, what is going to fill his heart? Joy. Why? Because the reason He came was to make these people well. And all of His suffering would be worth it. In fact, their coming for healing vindicates His suffering there in the jungle and makes His joy complete. That's why He went there to begin with. And so of course He is going to help them and not begrudge them for being sick. I mean, if you're a father, what kind of suffering would you not endure for the good, for the salvation of your wife and your children? You would endure it. You would endure it to, to the very limit of what you can humanly endure, wouldn't you? And at the end, would you be angry to, to have done it? If it meant the salvation, the preservation, the help of the people that you loved, your only regret would be that you could not endure more. And when they were helped, it would fill you with joy. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and despised its shame. This is what this says about the sufferings of Christ. But what does it say about his heart towards us? If you're like me, you wonder very often how Christ could ever 
possibly allow a sinner like me to come into His presence? How could I ever approach someone so kind, a Savior who died not because of the Romans and the Jews, but who died for me, who sweat drops of blood in the garden because my sin made that cup a little bit heavier, more poisonous. And He, now in heaven, so holy, how could I ever possibly approach Him? When you go to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the washing of your soul, you have to understand, you are going to Him for the very reason that He came. And Christ's own joy and own comfort and happiness and glory are increased and enlarged. Not when His people sin, but when in response to that sin, they come to Him for mercy and pardon and relief and comfort. It is His joy to forgive and to cleanse and to wash the feet of His beloved saints. Considering His suffering and our forgiveness, it ought to have a twofold effect. One, it should make us want to stop sinning, shouldn't it? How can I sin against one who has done so much good for me? I remember a little cartoon I saw when I was little, and in it there was a, there was a boy, and he, uh, he went out in a little boat into a pond, and the, the sign at the pond said, no swimming, no fishing, alligators in the pond. And the little boy got in the boat, and he paddled out into the lake, and he cast his rod, and he was fishing, and he, he reeled in a little fish, and he's happy about the fish, and then the boat starts to rock, and, and then an alligator comes and knocks him out of the boat, and it looks like he's going to die. Then you see a, a bunch of splashing in the water and something coming off of the nearby dock and, and then the whole scene goes black. It comes on again. There's an ambulance. Paramedics are shaking their head. Whoever's in there is not going to make it. But then you see the child sitting there safely on the shore. The next scene, there's a funeral. And the young man is there with his father who died rescue him being laid in the grave and then the next scene is the boy back at the pond rod in hand pushing his little boat back out into the into the lake you say how could he sin against his father the first time I maybe could understand not again how can we sin against such a kind and great-hearted Savior? That's one of the effects that this ought to have on us, that we not go on sinning. And yet, when we do sin, the second thing, we have an advocate with the Father, ready and desiring and delighting to forgive. We would think He would say, how could you possibly do this again? This passage reminds us that it is His delight to forgive His servants just like the doctor is pleased to heal those who come. The heart of Christ on display after He rises from His knees and later rises from the grave is one of unrestrained compassion where no failure of His saints seems to trouble Him except their unbelief. It's a kind of unbelief that might prevent someone from going to the doctor for fear the doctor might deceive them or fail them. That is the joy of Christ as He heads towards the cross. 
He will redeem and save His people. You say, is that here in the text? Is that here in Matthew? Because I'm reading it and I don't see it. Verse 45. Then He came to His disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. Or some translations, are you still resting? But that word rest later on, that's not what the word translated means. The word means finally or from now on. And translators are wrestling with this. That's why some of them pose it as a question. That's why some say, take your rest later on. Because they're, they're looking at it. So it sounds like Jesus is telling them two times before, don't go to sleep, stay awake. And now here He tells them, stay asleep. You can rest now. So we'll interpret it this way so it's consistent. Well, in the King James, it reads differently. It says, sleep on now and take your rest. Or that word, finally, sleep on now, finally, rest. Or sleep, and from now on, rest. Which makes the verse mean something completely different, doesn't, does it? doesn't it? Jesus tells them, now you may take your rest. Before, stay awake and pray. Now something's happened between stay awake and pray and sleep now and take your rest. What was it? Jesus, having won the battle in prayer, having been strengthened by communing with the Father, an angel sent to strengthen Him, and having settled the task before Him decisively, now he comes out to these three friends and watches over them like a father over his sleeping children, knowing now, because of what I have done, now, because of the resolve I have, you are secure and your salvation is sealed. You are forgiven for everything you are about to do. And he doesn't begrudge them. He has no bitterness towards them, folks, because there is no bitterness in Christ. Zero. And he tells them, I have won your rest. And now, even though I did this alone, now you may have it. He is blessing them, not rebuking them. He is happy to redeem them because he loves them. And even though they're on the verge of abandoning him, he is on the verge of redeeming them. And here, while they sleep, before he wakes them, he pronounces a blessing over them that now they might Rest. And it's not the kind of rest that they've been doing. Sleeping. This is the kind of rest the book of Hebrews talks about. This is the kind of rest that He welcomed them and called them to in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 when He said, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. And now, because of his submission to his Father's will and his love-motivated determination, God's people will have rest. Christ the Lord has secured it for them. And so now, safeguarded his people, having safeguarded them, having protected them, having secured them throughout the ages, including these disciples, he wakes them and he warns them so that he would not lose any his father has given him. And now he marches out boldly to meet his betrayer and his persecutors who will mock him and scourge him and torture him and kill him. He goes, 
He takes the cup and he drinks it down to the very last drop for the joy set before him. It's like a dam thousand miles high and a thousand miles wide was standing there and behind the dam uh, being held back by it was the wrath of God against sin. There in the valley below were the little flock of sheep, God's people. And the dam is being removed. It's coming out and so God sends the sun down and this is the moment the wrath of God about to be poured out, the cup about to be drained. The people there, His people in the valley before His wrath and Christ comes. He hesitates. Is there any other way? There is no other way. And love for His people compels Him to go. And He gathers them up in His arms and He throws them away from the dam. And when the dam is removed and the water comes crashing down, His sheep are nowhere to be found. They are safe and secure. And Christ takes every crushing blow. His sheep are so removed now. When it says Christ drank down the cup to the dregs, down to the very last drop, it means there is not one drop of God's wrath left for His children. But it has been taken down by Christ. He finds his greatest joy knowing that his people are safe. How will he not delight to forgive and welcome them and save those who he gave his life for after having suffered so much for that very purpose? An older preacher, he was considering the joy set before him and Christ's deep desire to save, and he, he tried to capture it by imagining what the Lord would say to his disciples about the soldier who drove his spear in his side. Imagine a disciple comes to Jesus and says, what about that one who speared you and pierced your heart? Jesus would answer, if you meet that poor wretch who drove his spear into my side, tell him there is another way and a better way of coming to my heart if he will repent and look on him who he pierced and mourn. I will cherish him in that very bosom that he has wounded and he will find the blood he shed an ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. There is more power in Christ's blood to forgive than in the sin of actually killing him, he says. And tell him from me he will put more pain and displeasure to me by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew it forth. As many sins as you've committed, as much as you have rejected Christ, as many pains as you may have caused him, the greatest wound to afflict him is when he says come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest for your souls and you say no when you won't come into his open arms with repentance and faith do you want to know what wounds the Savior a faith or a lack thereof that will not come to Him to be saved. He gets more joy and comfort than you do when you come to Him for forgiveness and salvation. The very reason He endured was so that you wouldn't have to. He drank down the cup for you out of love towards you. And look, if you won't come 
to him, you're not a believer, you're listening online, you won't come for fear of death. You won't come for fear of shame and guilt. Say, I'm afraid to die, but not that much. Yeah, I know I'm guilty, but not that guilty. I, I know I, I can't give up my sin. And none of those things would drive you to Christ. Then let His kindness bring you to repentance. And let the kindness shown in Christ, His joy to redeem you, melt your heart of stone and lead you to repentance. He'll have you. He'll forgive you and walk near with you and love you if only you would come. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, do not let your sin hinder you from enjoying and walking in union with Christ. When you sin, you have an advocate who does not begrudgingly forgive you, but who gave his life and shed his blood for that very purpose and who delights to heal and restore and forgive his people. Let's pray. Lord, there's no one like you. The greatest men in all of history combined their greatness together and it falls short. There is no one as courageous as you. No one as steadfast. There is no one as loving as you. Lord, you are more ready to forgive than we are to be forgiven. You are more ready to receive us than we are to be received. You're more ready to bless than we are to be blessed. More willing to save than we are to be saved. It's as though we're in the boat that was going down. Sharks surrounding us and there you are saying, come, come. And we hesitate. Lord, would you even forgive us of this hesitation? When we trampled your blood underfoot, you said, I will forgive you. My blood shed is more than enough to forgive your trampling it. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Lord, help us to believe. To not be like the disciples who doubt, but to believe, Lord, that you love us as much as you say you do. That you are as joyful to forgive as you have shown in your word. And Lord, that there is more grace in you than sin in us. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.